versus people that don't have money. So you see a lot of, you know, lower, and, and that's really a class issue, and, and race does come into play. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard, right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Good morning and welcome to Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Happy Sunday, everyone. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard, as I just said, and we here, we discuss politics, social issues, and foreign policy from a diverse millennial And how Jackie got engaged. Yes, yeah. Our correspondent Jackie is in we France. Got, we're going to be like um, Andy Cohn and give like six mazels right now. <laughs> Absolutely. So like, you, you get a mazel, you get a mazel, yeah. you get a mazel, and uh, we just mixed Andy Cohn with yeah, Oprah Winfrey. With Oprah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, so Jackie's not here, but guys, if you're wondering who I am, my name is Selena Hill on Twitter and Instagram. You can find me at Miss Selena Hill. And if you're wondering why I'm sitting in the engineer seat, it's because Stanley has a work obligation that has caused him to not stay at the show. Stanley's so fancy. That's right. That's what it is. Right, yeah. So, well, at least that's what he told us. He could be going <laughs> on a date with Maryland. We don't know because he's dressed up. But we're, I'm, I'm going to take his word for it. But, yeah, Alyssa, good morning. Good morning. Um, so, I am Alyssa Fuchs. I am your legal and political correspondent uh, here on uh, WHCR, Let Your Voice Be Heard Radio, Sunday mornings. Um, and, uh, yeah, you can find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash Alyssa Fuchs or on Twitter at Alyssa Fuchs. And that's Alyssa with an I, uh, or you can leave a comment or a question or, a, you know, a rant on uh, politically preposterous. And we will try and get your comments, questions and rants on the air sometime today. So stick with us. We're going to have a great show for you. Absolutely. And we are happy to welcome back Tiffany Brown. Uh, she hasn't been here since a limited. Yep. dropped mm-hmm. in 2016 and that segment was it's actually one of my favorite our segments. Be- it's the yeah. best it's the segment that received the most engagement and likes ever on Let Your Voice Be Heard um, yes. so Tiffany happy to have awesome. you back awesome thanks for having me just in case people forgot please reintroduce yourself and the work you do as an activist my name is Tiffany Brown uh, I currently work for a labor union focusing on higher education uh, reform and affordability I also do movement stuff when it comes to like Black Lives Matter, you know, police brutality and things of that nature. And you can find me on Twitter at Tiff, T-I-F-F, Liz B. All right, Tiff. So happy to have you back. We're happy to be here. Uh, we have a great show lined up. We're actually starting off the show talking about that viral Me Too campaign. Uh, everybody's been talking about it, especially women, as we feel empowered to uh, talk about the experiences we've had in connection to sexual harassment, abuse, and assault. And we have a very special guest who will be calling into the show. We have the Deputy Director of Hollaback. Uh, Hollaback is a global movement and initiative that has been working to stop street harassment for years now. And we're very excited to uh, welcome back the Deputy Director. We've also had the founder from Hollaback, so they're definitely friends of the show here on Let Your Voice Be Heard. Later on, we're going to be speaking about what happened in um, Nigeria. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, it, yeah, I always had this weird thing about how it's pronounced, yeah. and then I ha- heard people pronouncing it. Yeah, it is Niger. Yeah, Niger. Um, I always thought it was Niger. So. I almost said the N word a few times. I thought it was the N word. All right. Well, it's definitely not that. 
Um, so, I mean, how could you have a country that, you know, say, was a, I mean, actually, hey, you know, nothing would surprise me these days. There mm. are stores named after the N-word. So I, I, I wouldn't even be that surprised. But, yeah, we're going to be talking about Trump's response there and, like, what's been going on. Uh, and then later on in the show, we'll have a, we will have an in-depth conversation about um, Donald Trump and... <laughs> and what? <laughs> <laughs> hold on, hold on. Puerto Rico. Oh, Donald yes. Trump in Puerto Rico. Yes, we have a very special guest who'll be calling in uh, and we'll be talking about uh, the devastation in Puerto Rico one month later. So uh, apparently, Donald Trump thinks his administration has been doing a phenomenal job there. A 10. <laughs> Seriously. He gave himself he, a 10. Well, I mean, I it's easy to give yourself. <laughs> I have a clip of that. It's easy right, to Stanley? give yourself a 10. Um, you know, this is like. He gives himself a 10 on looks, too, I This think. is like one of my favorite <laughs> memes, and it's a picture of police officers, and it says, we investigated ourselves and we cleared ourselves <laughs> right, of any yeah. wrongdoing. Um, I mean, that's what it is. Like, of course he's going to give himself a 10. He's a giant ego maniac um as i sit here and try and lift my chair <laughs> and <laughs> it's not bigger. working um it's all right i locked myself out of my house this week uh, um, you did yeah i left my jacket at my job and i left my keys in my jacket so then i had to go find the super to let me in fun times adventures in adulting oh wow well you survived and you made it here Alyssa. i know i'm a survivor <laughs> absolutely and we'll be speaking about survivors later on in the show and then last but not least, Alyssa will give a breakdown on graffiti art and if it is protected by our law. Alyssa? Right. So, um, yeah, I'm going to talk about five points. If you don't know what five points is, I'll tell you a little more in depth later. But basically, it was uh, a place where this developer told these graffiti artists that they had permission to um, put their art. Um, and then eventually he decided he wanted to tear it down and build condos. I mean, like, what else is new? It's New York City. Um, everything gets torn down to build condos. And then he did not give these artists notice that he was going to cover up their graffiti art, although he sort of disputes that characterization, which I'm going to talk about later. Um, and now the artists are suing him, and they are claiming that their graffiti art is protected under uh, VARA, which is the Visual Arts Restoration Act, I believe, if I'm not getting that wrong, but I will get it right later on if I am uh, getting it wrong now. Um, and they're saying that uh, because he did not provide them notice, then they owe him money damages for destroying their works of art. Um, and so it's a very interesting case and it has the um, ability to possibly establish graffiti art um, as protected under the First Amendment because um, while I was incorrect Thursday night when I was speaking to my team, it actually is a federal lawsuit. So it does have the ability to potentially have or make waves throughout the country when it comes to this issue. So um, we'll talk a lot more about that later. It will be really, really interesting. Um, and I'm going to throw it back to Selena. I think we're going to take a quick break. Yeah, so we are going to go on a quick break. But again, guys, if you want to let your voice be heard, remember, you can call us up at 212-650-6903. You can also tweet us at BeHeard underscore radio. And leave comments on our Facebook Live. Don't go anywhere. When we come back, we're talking about Me Too, the global viral phenomenon. And we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Again, my name is Selena Hill. I'm here with Alyssa Fuchs and Tiffany Brown. And we're starting off today's show having a very serious conversation about what's been going on on Line. I mean, if you guys have Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, I'm pretty sure you've seen the stories and experiences that many women have been talking about when it comes to sexual abuse, assault, and harassment. 
Now, this all started uh, after allegations that Harvey Weinstein, who, again, is one of the most powerful producers in Hollywood, he has been uh, accused of using his power and clout to sexually assault, harass and prey upon women. Women like Lupita uh, Nyong'o, I always get her last name right, but Lupita um Angelita Jolie, um, Gwyneth Paltrow, a number of big names, and in, even models and uh, younger women, people that don't aren't ne- uh, necessarily known as a household name, but a number of women, scores of women. He's been in Hollywood for three decades, and supposedly, allegedly, this is what he's been doing. So he's been preying upon these women. And after they came out, uh, it reignited a national conversation about sexual assault with the hashtag Me Too. Now, Me Too, the hashtag, it became a viral phenomenon after Alyssa Milano shared a post in which she she revealed she had been uh, sexually violated. And she included a screenshot of the title of the idea that, and I quote, if all the women who have been sexually harassed or assaulted wrote Me Too, uh, as a status, we might give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. Uh, then the actress then wrote, if you've been sexually harassed or assaulted, write me too and reply to this tweet. As a result, millions, and I mean millions of people, women and survivors, started to retweet. Uh, they used the hashtag and then they talked about their own experiences. However, Alyssa Milano was actually not the first woman to even use the phrase Me Too uh, to, in relation to a sexual assault. Uh, it actually started about 10 years ago by a black woman named Tarana Burke who started this campaign as a grassroots movement to aid sexual assault survivors in underprivileged communities where rape crisis centers and uh, sexual assault workers aren't really, uh, aren't really there uh, because they're under-resourced, of course. So now Tawana, she still works when it, uh, to empower these women, and she's currently the program director at Girls for Gender Equality. So I just wanted to say that because initially when this, vi- when this hashtag went viral, you saw a lot of, you saw some backlash of people saying like, hey, you know, Alyssa shouldn't be getting all of the, the praise for, for inventing this. This was actually invented by a black woman, and we know historically black women have been erased from conversations or their intellectual property has been appropriated. So I just wanted to make it clear that, no, we know where uh, this originated from. But, of course, Tarana is not a celebrity. She's not a white woman. She's not an actress. So it's like when she says something and we say stuff, like us here, it's not, it doesn't go viral. It's not that big of a deal. It's almost day-to-day. It's normalized. But people who, who, are, who are actresses or have some type of clout, when they speak out, thank God it's finally uh, moving the needle, I think, in this conversation. So I wanted to uh, actually start the conversation by sharing some of our own personal experiences and uh, stories. We have all women. We have an all women show here. I have my co-host uh, Alyssa Fuchs and we have very special guest Tiffany Brown. And if you're just tuning in, we also have a very special guest on the line who I will introduce in a few more moments. But, you know, uh, Alyssa, you know, a few days ago we spoke about how like even you who you identify as queer, uh, you're gender fluid, you still get sexually harassed by yeah. men. No, this is true. So actually this ha- I mean, uh, thankfully, I've never been sexually assaulted, but I, I do get sexually harassed. 
podcast. Um, I actually get really caught off guard when it happens because it doesn't happen that often. Um, so I can only imagine um, that it happens to women who are not queer and are very feminine presenting a lot more often than it happens to me. Um, but like the other day, um, you know, I was uh, at the office and there was some lawyer there. Um, I didn't know him. He obviously was there for, you know, some kind of meeting with another lawyer in my office. And I was wearing a button down shirt and I was wearing like dress pants and suspenders um, that hold the dress pants up because like they don't come with belt loops. And as I walked by back to my desk, he said something to me along the lines of, I like your suspenders. They make your breasts look good or something. And I was like, excuse me, what? Um, so, yeah, I mean, and, and even though it doesn't happen that often, like I from time to time will have men yell at me on the street. And again, like it catches me off guard as a queer woman because I'm like, you know, like I'm not very feminine, but it goes to show you like you don't have to be very feminine. You can be even a more masculine woman. It doesn't matter how you're dressed. You know, I don't dress very feminine. I dress very masculine. Um, and you can still get sexually harassed and catcalled on the streets of New York despite that. Um, so that's a real issue. I'm going to throw it to Tiffany um, now because I'm sure you have some experiences <laughs> with this kind of thing as well. Yeah, so thankfully, I've never been sexually assaulted or harassed by, let's say, a person in power or, like, my employer. But definitely been in situations where men have said, like, off-putting comments or where you just feel uncomfortable around someone once they say something. And you're just like, um, that made me feel weird. And if you read the uh, op-ed by Lupita, like, she really captured that sentiment of, like, how oftentimes women question their intuition, like, is, like, maybe I'm overreacting. Maybe he didn't mean it that way. And just sometimes you just have to trust your gut when you're in those situations. It's like, no, you felt that way for a reason. So why did this person make you feel this way? Maybe there was a miscommunication. But I think oftentimes women kind of, like, try to rationalize it or justify it a way to not to feel like they're not making a big issue of it. And it needs to be made a big issue because once uh, it got reignited, all of these women came out with their stories. And when Lupita said, like, it was a conspiracy of silence almost because it's just this pack that you're either brushing it off or you don't want to make a big deal about or you just think, like, off the bat, no one's going to believe me. No, absolutely. You guys are absolutely right. And, guys, if you have any... Uh, personal experiences or stories that you would like to share feel free to give us a call at 212-650-6903 and as i mentioned at the beginning of the show we actually have on the line with us Dabanji roy she is the de deputy director of hollaback which is a global people-powered movement to end harassment welcome back to the show Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So, you know, we uh, briefly gave some experiences that we've had. Um, you know, I, even myself, like, I, as a woman of color, I still remember uh, when I was a teenager and, like, some adult men were trying to hit on me uh, in my neighborhood. And I just walked away and, like, I was called a B-word. I was called a hoe. Like, I was humiliated. And, like, that was, like, one of the first um first experience that really impacted me not in a way that not in a severe way but I still remember it and you know uh Johnny you've been doing this work for years how what did what was your reaction when me too went viral I saw it popping up from a few advocates on my Facebook feed and I was like oh okay this is and internationally as well um some women in the UK were the first ones to post it up. And I saw it and I was like, okay, I guess I could, like I immediately jumped in, um, but I did not 
predict that it would um, go viral in the way that it did. And I had no idea that, you know, Alyssa Milano did the hashtag. Um, and then I, of course, didn't even, I didn't realize that um, Tarana Burke started it 10 years ago, started the phrase 10 years ago. So, and then when I saw it, it was like on a Sunday where I thought popping up and then Monday morning it had just blown up and it was simultaneously surprising and not surprising because on the one hand, there have been other campaigns like this, like Yes All Women um, and some other ones and they did catch on. I remember I was, the It's Not Okay campaign. It's around not that, o- yeah. yeah, It's Not Okay or, or the other one, You Okay Sis started by Feminista Jones, um, talking specifically about street harassment. Um, So other ones have gone viral. I guess what I'm hearing from a lot of folks right now is that, look, we've had so many of these campaigns. We are always having to confess what's happened to us. But what about the other side? What about the people who are perpetrating this, oftentimes men? Um, what about them admitting to what they've done and then uh, committing to doing better or committing to do something like I hashtag I will do something or um, I've said in certain statements this past week, like me too. I stepped in when I saw that guy following that woman and I thought she was clearly uncomfortable or me too. I spoke up when my friend said something sexist and derogatory towards that woman. Um, we're, we want to change the conversation and Kudos to Tarana Burke for doing this 10 years ago because I, I actually come from a grassroots movement, uh, originally working amongst women of color. And so much, we do so much of this work and it's never elevated. Um, it happens in our communities and amongst the women who we're really working with and for, and that's what matters, like what's happening on the ground. And the fact that it's elevated through a hashtag is important. We need to always hear the stories, but I do sense a certain amount of fatigue from survivors who are just like, oh my gosh, how many more times do I right. need to tell this story? Uh, absolutely. And guys, if you're just tuning in, we have on the line with us Deb Johnny Roy. She is the deputy director of Holla Back, and we're speaking about the Me Too campaign. And, you know, you're absolutely right. I'm aligned and I agree and uh, with everything you said, but I will say this. Um, some of the conversations that I've been having, particularly with women, haven't been as positive or empowering. Like, for instance, I was at work with my colleagues, and after reading the uh, Lupita's confession about how Harvey Weinstein made her feel extremely uncomfortable and harassed her um, and was almost like a sexual predator, they were like, first of all, why did Lupita even go into the room? Like, literally, they were like, and they, they were like, like, these were elder women, like elder colleagues, like honestly, like, and I guess they were saying that they wanted, they, they wanted to take like a precautious stance and they were talking to me as a younger person and they're like, look, if you're by yourself and you're a woman, do, don't ever go into a man's hotel room because you don't know what could happen. And then I've read comments on the New York Times post. People were like, they literally, someone literally wrote that Lupita or women like this put their heads into a lion's mouth and don't expect to get bit. So, so and, uh, Alyssa's uh, reacting here. I want to get your response to that, Alyssa. I mean, listen, this is an argument that I have with women all the time that I think is like, w- for some reason, women want to blame other women for getting in the position, um, you know, of getting sexually harassed when it's really about men. 
You know, like it's like men are never told don't go to hotel room with somebody or don't do this or don't do that or, you know, don't be with this person because, you know, like they're treated as the, you know, quote unquote stronger sex that doesn't need any protection. And like the fact of the matter is, and I I don't want to divert away from women, like men do get sexually assaulted too, which is another conversation for another show. But, you know, it's like women are constantly told, you know, don't be alone with this person. Don't wear certain things. Don't don't do this. Don't do this. And that like, it's always your fault. At what point do we step back and we say, no, it's not the women's fault. It's society's fault. It's men's fault. We need to work on changing society and telling men it's not okay to rape. It's not okay to sexually harass. It's not okay to do these things and stop telling women, oh, it's the way you're dressed or it's the way you act. Because I'll tell you, there was a whole art exhibit um, out at like, I think it was the University of Kansas that was called What I Was Wearing When I Was Raped. And it was a collection of of pajamas, sweatpants, sweatshirts, t-shirts. A woman can be walking down the street literally in pajama pajama pants and t-shirt and she could still get raped. So this idea that, oh, well, maybe you were wearing something sexy or maybe you shouldn't have done that is a way of shifting blame onto women instead of blaming the real problem, which is society and men. Well, well, Alyssa, I hear you and I want to get Tiffany in this conversation Mm -hmm. because, look, and and I always say this, if I ever have children, God willing, I'm going to tell, my, teach my boys not to uh, be creepy, predatory, and God forbid, uh, assault themselves on any woman and to respect women. And But I, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm going to tell my girls that the reality of a situation is you're more like because of the way the patriarchy is set up and society is set up. The reality is you there are some predicaments or situations that could become harmful or dangerous and it's I feel like I'm not saying it from a victim blaming or victim shaming standpoint but it's like me being realistic Tiffany where do you stand on this um disappoint I think you're saying it from a preventative standpoint I do understand what you're saying and Emma Thompson uh she did an interview with BBC News tonight and they asked her about the whole wine scene uh uh, scandal, And she said, um, so what we need to start talking about is the crisis in masculinity, the crisis in extreme masculinity in which this sort of behavior and the fact that it's not only OK, but it's also represented by most powerful uh, man in the world. Like they were alluding that she was talking about Donald Trump. And to P- Alyssa's point, I think it is a culture where women are to have to be preventative because, you know, society is not necessarily shifting at the moment. So you have these men in powerful positions that take advantage of that power because it's not about, you know, sexual pleasure or anything of that nature. It's about being able to overpower someone that you feel that is less than and doesn't have as much um, clout as you. And that's exactly what Weinstein did when you, you saw that. And what Lupita said and Rose McGowan and all of these women that came out. So you do have to start talking to young men and telling them that, you know, you need an active and consenting yes. You know, as soon as you sense that she is uncomfortable, you you back off, even if that wasn't your intention to make her uncomfortable. Because a lot of these behaviors are have been normalized and they are very much, you know, conditioned in us. So. Sometimes when you tell women, I don't, I don't think it's, you know, fruitful when you tell women you shouldn't dress a certain way. Maybe you shouldn't have so many drinks. And you're not having these same conversations with young men and even older men who, like, you know, sometimes you work in the office with an older man and they say, like, just offhanded remarks. And it's like, whoa. Right. Like, what year are we in that you even think that's okay? And, and what year, why, why was it ever okay? So I definitely think we need to start having a shift 
in conversations. We shouldn't always have to tell our stories because it, it gets to the point where like, why do I have to plead my humanity or you have to hear my heartbreak for you to just not harass me? Right. No. And I, mm. look, and I fully understand that. Like, mm. I'm I'm a fully aligned um, because it's not about what you wear. Like, at the end of the day, I know women who were raped in their school uniform or in jeans. Like, mm. it, it, that means absolutely nothing. But uh, Deb Johnny, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. Is there a difference between um, being preventative and being precautious and telling, uh, trying to, you know, telling young girls the reality of situation and telling them like, hey, this something like this could happen if you are alone in a room with a man of power? Like, what is your take on that? Or any man. Or any man. Especially (laughs) men of power. Especially men of power. All of your points just resonate with me so strongly because we're you know, we have to talk about the reality of what's happening now and today. Um, our view as advocates is we're looking at the, long, the long-term situation and what we can do um, to change the culture of the society. And that's not going to happen tomorrow. It'll happen slowly day by day. So our perspective is to get into the schools, talk to young people, middle schoolers, high schoolers, when a lot of this behavior starts to start and where it's... Um, impacted by peer pressure and where people feel like they have to, you know, they're coming into their femininity, masculinity, and all, you know, um, identities across the spectrum. But that's where it's really being um, confirmed. So it's important for us to get in there and have these conversations with younger people. Like, why do you think that's the right way to talk to a girl? Or why do you think um, if you wear a certain thing, you're going to be targeted? Like, just having more open conversations Look, I, I love the fact that we're in this, like, woman of color space right now because um, real talk, I, I'm a South Asian American woman. I grew up in the 80s and 90s here in the U.S., and my family, like, my, the women would often tell me, cover up, um, don't show this or that, don't expose yourself, and all the onus was on me as a girl, Right. Um, and we never furthered the conversation. I grew up with a brother as well. Uh, we never grew up with a conversation like, this is how you treat women, and this is what you should or should not do. Those conversations also need to happen in the home. And if not in the home, then in the community, in the neighborhood. There's so many opportunities to talk to younger people about this so we could set the norms and change the culture for the long term. In the short term, though, the whole victim blaming happening with Lupita Nyong'o is killing me because... Actually, I read today Harvey Weinstein picked her out and called her by name today or yesterday, um, saying that she invited him to see her play recently. He didn't call out Gwyneth Paltrow. He didn't call out Angelina Jolie. He did not call out anyone else. But he named her by name today. And he's saying, well, kind of like she, well, she asked for it. She's not telling you the full story. And he's clearly picking on her because she's a black woman She's a woman of color, and she spoke up. And that was my fear when I saw her op-ed in the New York Times. Uh, thank you so much, Dabjani, for uh, just pointing that out. Uh, guys, this is Let Your Voice Be Heard. We're talking about the Me Too campaign. We do have to take a quick break, but when we come back, we have a caller on the line who would like to let his voice be heard. Don't go anywhere. Yeah, 
And we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Again, my name is Selena Hill. I'm here with my co-host, Alyssa Fuchs. What, what? Special guest, Tiffany Brown. Hello. Jackie's in Paris and Stanley supposedly at work. Jackie's in Paris <laughs> becoming property, didn't you hear? No. It's <laughs> a joke. I'm being sarcastic given our segment. I know, guys, but... Hey, it's a joke, but um, yeah, she did get engaged, so kudos to Jackie. Congrats. Congratulations. So um, we actually had a caller on the line who would like to let his voice uh, be heard. But again, we're talking about the Me Too campaign, and we have special guests on the line with us, Deb Johnny Roy from Hollaback. So before we left off, we were talking about um, someone mentioned consent, and um, we live in a society where you know, yes has to mean yes. And I think as millennials, we've been taking that very seriously, uh, so much so that there are apps where before you engage in any type of hookup or any type of sexual activity, some people may say like, hey, I want to get this recorded, right? I want to make sure that I get a a legal agreement or I get your picture, I want to get you on video and making sure that there's consent to protect both parties. Now, I want to get your, your take on that Deb Johnny you know as an activist in this space um how do you feel about these consenting apps because I also saw some criticism where people are like it's kind of unsexy um I actually have not heard about these consenting apps where you actually have to get documentation of any kind or have people sign off um again the real focus um needs to be on culture change and how we interact with one another um, between genders, between sexes, um, having something to sign off on seems a, a little, a little unusual to me. Um, but at the same time, uh, a lot of people are feeling like they're not protected, and a lot of people are often not in a position to consent, and they're fully taken advantage of, and so they don't exactly know. Um, they don't, you know, they want to have some protections in place, and I completely understand it, especially. Once you go through something like that, and if you're a survivor, you want to take certain precautions, you want to have certain apps, you want to have certain tools at your disposal. Um, but in the, again, I'm talking about the real situation. To what degree is it actually possible to sign off on something or to have that agreement through the app? And again, I don't know the details of these apps, so I could be getting it wrong. Um, but how, how practical is it to do that? Um, rather, what we'd like to focus on is how to have that conversation. Why do we need to pull out our phones and do all of that stuff? Why can't we, just as human beings, try to figure out how to have that conversation on a very basic and respectful level between the genders, between the sexes, um, and amongst sexes and amongst genders, of course, as well. It happens, of course, across the line. So- right. Um, well, Tiffany, I want to get your feedback on that. Do you th- Would you use a consenting app of that nature? Um, I don't think... I feel like it's getting to the point where it's almost like you, you're trying, what did they say? Like you're, you throw everything at the kitchen sink or something like you just throw everything at the issue and you see what kind of like sticks <laughs> rather than like <laughs> just like, going right to the it. source and <laughs> just having these conversations as uh, the deputy director from Hollaback is saying. And I though I don't personally think I would use those consenting apps because I feel like it's still not putting the onus on the people that the onus needs to be on. I feel like we need to have active and engaged conversations. So, yeah, these apps may be great. I'm pretty sure they're probably, like, targeted when you're, like, in college and you're going to parties and 
those type of niche. So I feel like it may serve a certain population that may not be able to necessarily can feel that they need it. But I also don't think it, it's not, you know, addressing the root of the issue. Alyssa. Right. And, you know, listen, I just wanted to talk for a second about um, something else you just said about, you know, lack of consent. I mean, this problem goes even deeper than just, you know, college students, um, you know, and and even young adults and, you you know, millennials like us in terms of uh, relationships. But, you know, our guest, Johnny, mentioned about people who can't consent. We literally have a huge scandal going on here right here in New York City where there's a young woman who's 18 years old who was arrested. She was in custody in hand handcuffs and these two officers raped her or allegedly raped her although they admit that they had sex with her and their dna was found on her body um and they're saying that she consented that's what they're saying and they're going online and leaking stuff from the post on and putting all these pictures that they're finding on her facebook page um out in order to damage her credibility and make it seem as though they are telling the truth and we are not and so that gets back to my comment before about larger things that are going on in society we literally have police officers who have sex with women in custody and then try and say that they consented when legally they can't consent if they're in custody. Although in New York, that's a little not not, you know, legally, whether that's true or not is a little sketchy, which means that we need better laws. Um, And then we have politicians like back then a few years ago where we had the guy who said it's a if it's a legitimate rape, um, that guy uh, Aiken. And, you know, you've had other politicians say things like women rape easy or back in my day, we prevented a pregnancy by a woman putting uh, an aspirin between her knees. So you have all the comments um, coming from the position in power and things like police officers having sex with uh, people who are under arrest that cannot consent. But to add insult to injury, you then have politicians who make laws that literally are attacks on women. Like just recently, we had the president announce that insurance companies are no longer going to have to cover birth control. Um, And the House right now wants to pass one of the most extreme abortion bars there is. So you also have to look at the bigger picture issues and how this affects how society treats women. Because we don't respect women. Our politicians don't respect women. There's constantly a war on women. And then we wonder why women get sexually harassed and assaulted. Again, it's not about what they're wearing or how they act. It's about society. No, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, that, that just leads me uh, to wonder, you know, sexual harassment has been going on for a long, long time. It's historic and it's something that's pervasive in all cultures, no matter if you're wearing a burqa or you're wearing a bikini. Uh, what I, I, I kind of want to talk about the cultural shifts that have inspired women to start speaking up now. Because, I mean, like even even in my own family, I have family members who are survivors who've never said anything, who've waited decades and like, you know, obviously it was a part of their own healing process, but they've never confronted their attacker or even told other family members like, hey, this person attacked me. Don't leave. You, you know, you, you might want to watch this person around your kids or something like that. It was just something that was silent. It was something that was normalized. So, uh, Deb Johnny, what do you think is so different about today's time or maybe it's today's woman uh, that's really empowering or inspiring us to speak up? I think there have been a number of tipping points. Um, the first one in American history, at least, being Anita Hill's testimony. Um, I don't know if you've seen the documentary, Anita, but you watch her go through the questioning um, and speaking her truth and talking about her experiences of sexual harassment and assault. And I think she really changed the game. She set the tone 
for what is okay to talk about um, and make women feel far more comfortable with talking about what's happened to them in the workplace. So it started there, I believe. But then you have projects, the story sharing, uh, giving people a platform and a space to tell their stories, take back the night, right, when that started up in the 90s, um, having an open space in person where women could give their testimonials, not just women, but people, survivors of sexual assault, could give their testimonials up front, in person, in front of their classmates, in front of their school, um, events like that. And then, of course, um, the Hollaback platform allows people to share their stories of harassment, and we have thousands and thousands of stories, and it's not just U.S.-based, it's global. So we know this is a unified global problem, unfortunately. And so when you hear more stories, it really encourages others to tell theirs. You feel less shame. You feel less isolated. You feel less in hiding if you read other people's stories. And there is a role that people who have a platform and celebrities that they play in this situation. If you see someone like a big name actress that you admire, whose work you admire, who has such a platform, share their story. You're like, Oh, but she's powerful and she's wealthy. And she has all things that you thought, you know, that comes along with privilege. If she's able to say it, then you're like, okay, so it happens in that industry too. And then you start connecting the dots. And even within our families, I think there is culture shift taking place as well because of the media. The media is covering these stories a lot more. Um, programs like this are covering stories a lot more and we're having these conversations. Uh, absolutely. And the fact is, I think statistics show that one in three women are sexually assaulted. Uh, and eight, I think it's like 89 or 80 percent of women uh, across the globe, uh, across the world are sexually harassed. Uh, Deb Johnny, mm-hmm. you, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. But the thing is, it's happening. And whether or not, you know, it's. It's this woman speaking up or that woman. The fact of the matter is it's happening and it's a global epidemic and something does need to be done to stop it. Well, Zabjani, we do want to um, just thank you for coming onto our show once again and for the work that you are doing in this space. Can you please let our listeners know how they can contact you and support your movement and particularly Hollaback? Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. And I'm, I have to say I'm moved by each and every one of you who've spoken today, really, truly, and honestly. Um, you could share your story on our platform, iHollaback.org. We have a free app on the Android and Apple uh, on the iPhone. Uh, you can download that for free and share your story as well here in New York City. You have the choice to elevate your story to your local council members so they can see what's happening um, in your area. So iHollaback.org, that's the way to contact us. Great. Thank you again, guys. And, you know, I just wanted to uh, end the conversation by getting some last and final thoughts from the panel because, you know, this is a great step that we have taken to have millions of women speaking out and millions of survivors, uh, no matter how they identify. But a lot more needs to be done. So I'll throw it to Tiffany first. What else needs to be done and what can and should we all be doing? Um, First, I want to just say listen to women especially listen to black women, because it's not just a point that, you know, Tarana Burke should have gotten the credit, but it's the fact that women, especially women of color, have been doing this work for a very long time. We're not new to it. We're true to it. So I think when in light of the scandal and when we talk about, oh, why didn't they come forward earlier? It's like, listen, you have to listen to us and believe us. And I think That is a huge takeaway when we talk about people in power and especially people in power who can actively do something about it, you know, who can actually call out a fellow person like, yo, what you're doing is crazy right now. You should not be treating women like this. So 
we need to listen to women and listen to women of color, especially black women, because, you know, we've been doing this. We out here. Absolutely, <laughs> Tiffany. Alyssa? Right. No, I mean, listen, I would agree with that as well. Um, you know, one of the most important things, as Tiffany already said, is listen to women and not just listen to them. Believe women when they speak. Um, you know, obviously, there's numerous steps that we can take. But the most important thing in my mind is to stop blaming women for being the victim and start blaming society and start doing something to change society. Talk to your male friends. Talk to your male colleagues. Talk to your family members. Every man in here, or not in here, but every man in this country, in this world, has a mother. Um, you know, they. Every, you know, I, I hate to quote Tupac as a white woman, but you know, Tupac really said it best in some ways. You know, everybody came from a woman, got their name from a woman, and their game from a woman. Why do we hate our women? Why do we rape our women? Why do we kill our our women? Do we hate our women? Um, and so, you know, talk to your mother, talk to your brother, talk to your sisters, because I'm sure as a man, if you have a sister, if you have a mother, you have a grandmother, you wouldn't want them to be raped. And if your mother was raped walking down the street and, you know, regardless of what she was wearing, you would be annoyed. You would want to go after the man who raped your mother. You would want to go after the man that raped your sister. So you should think about that the next time you want to say some rapey comment to some woman on the street as they're passing you by. No, absolutely. Uh, well said, Upload, uh, and I'm aligned with both you women here. And I would just say, absolutely, we have a very deep-seated distrust of what women say. Statistics show that um, 98% of the time when a woman says that she has been raped or assaulted, it is true, and it is proven true. Only 2% of the time has this been uh, proven to be a conspiracy or something that was not true. So the mass majority of the time, it is happening, believe us. And I, I think that also what ha tends to happen is we're very dismissive and we trivialize what women say, where it's like, well, you, you know, we make light of it or we say that, well, you should have been doing this. And that type of language and that type of mentality definitely needs to stop. And I will say to take it a, a step further, it's time to put the onus on men and boys in particular. I mean, and that's why I always want, I want to actually give kudos to Men Can Stop Rape. That is one of the, uh, one organization that is dedicated to teaching boys and men how to stop predatory behavior. It is, uh, we do live in a patriarchal society and it is something that is very customary and normalized. But all it takes sometimes is that one man to say, hey, you grabbing that woman on the street like that is is inappropriate. You rubbing up on a woman on the subway just because it's crowded, that is extremely inappropriate. That's harassment. It's illegal. And you need to stop. And I think that if we continue to have these conversations and we educate our boys and men about the realities here and they start to open up, we can stop this epidemic. On that note, I'm going to go to another break. But don't go anywhere. When we come back, we're going straight into the news roundup. And we'll actually be talking about the new Playboy issue has put on a trans woman. So we'll be talking about that right here. And we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. We just wrapped up a very impactful conversation about the viral Me Too campaign and how what needs to be done to stop the epidemic of sexual harassment, assault, and rape against women. Uh, now we're heading straight into the news roundup. This is the time where we talk about the news stories that made us laugh, that made us cry, and that made us, as Stanley would say, he's not here, punch the table. So, Alyssa? 
Um, yes, yeah, so, you know, um, in all things um, interesting and fun. Um, and actually related to our last conversation, so Playboy magazine, um, probably the world's most famous nudie magazine, you Hefner um, got famous for saying, I'm going to put whoever I want in this magazine, I'm going to put out this nude magazine at a time uh, in American history where it was actually still illegal in some ways to publish uh, pornography, even in its softest form. Of course, today Today, we're now in a situation where you can publish any type of pornography you want, even stuff these days that apparently crosses the line. Of course, that's from what I hear. Um, And so uh, this week, Playboy announced that they were going they had hired their first transgender uh, playmate. And um, then, of course, there was a huge amount of praise for Playboy for doing this. But there was also a huge amount of backlash. Um, and people started saying they were going to unsubscribe. Um, and then other people were praising the magazine. Uh, and what Playboy actually started doing is they started posting tweets that juxtaposed people's reactions to um, 1965 when they hired their first black playmate to people's reactions today when they hired their first trans playmate. Um, and then there was also another story I was reading where a bunch of trans people were coming out and they say, we've posed in Playboy before, um, even though there's never been a, a playmate that was trans before today. Um, and you, Hefner, was one of the few people that accepted us in an industry where nobody would accept us um, during those times. And so Jackie and I, who obviously she's not here today, we're having a conversation about this and how it's interesting because on one hand, Playboy has been super progressive. But on the other hand, um, you know, like Playboy objectifies women and, you know, that plays into the larger conversation about sexual assault and sexual harassment that we were just having. Um, so that's why I find this to be such an interesting story. But I'd love to get your guys' reactions to this as well. Oh. <laughs> um, I heard, like, briefly, like, um, did some research about the story. But I think, you know, in this age where we're seeing more trans people have a voice, they're on talk shows, you know, they're um, on the, the runway, they're in fashion houses. So I think, you know, like you said, it is a progressive stance for Playboy to put, you know, their first trans uh, person on the cover. But it's also like, it's like, oh, God, it's like Playboy. Uh, and you know that meme? I can't remember his name. What's his name from um, Curb Your Enthusiasm? Larry David. Larry David. <laughs> Wait, it's like that meme where it's just like, oh, okay. Like, I get what <laughs> you're doing, but still awful. But, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's a great step, especially for the uh, trans community. I would say that, and I'm not sure if Alyssa already mentioned it, but um, the reaction has been juxtaposed to the same reaction mm-hmm. uh, that uh, the Playboy got when they put their black uh, model on uh, back in the 1960s. So I, I think that, like, again, like, I'm not, I don't support, I can't, like, fully support Playboy. I do understand what they're trying to do here, and I do think it gives agency to the trans community. Mm-hmm. Um, commendable, definitely, but, like, overall, I'm like... I'm not looking for Playboy to be the prog- like the right. progressive voice of the laugh, honestly. Like, right. Obviously. I mean, well, this also plays yeah. into a larger conversation about agency in terms of women posing nude to begin with, right? Right. right. And right. that definitely has a big impact, a lot to do with the conversation we just had. I mean, where is the line? Um, you know, some women mm. will tell you, I like posing naked. Mm. Um, right. Other women will tell you, I like being a porn star. You know, like they did a, you know, there's been numerous right. interviews done with um, several different females that are very famous porn stars 
that say, I love this. Um, you go to Australia um, they, where prostitution is legal um, and they don't have as many problems with sex trafficking as they do where prostitution is legal in places in Europe. And you'll find that there's a lot of women who take agency, who say, you know, some women want to be a publisher. Some women want to be a writer. Some women want to be a journalist. I want to be a prostitute, you know, <laughs> and like they I take mean- that agency for themselves. So, you know, like that's a bigger part of the conversation about right. like where that line is. No, no, no. I th- Alyssa, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that like feminism is about choice, right? right. It's about what you want to do. But like, I-, I think that our society has, because it objectifies women and because women have less choices and because women are more likely to become victims of sexual assault and, and sexual harassment and rape, it-, it like all of these factors play into uh, this-, this culture. So to me, like, I, I wouldn't want to oversimplify it. it. Like, I don't I don't think, I think we would be oversimplifying the issue by saying, like, yeah, women, if you want to choose to be a sex worker or whatever, then that's fine. T- to me, I like to examine and dig a little deeper because I think that the issues definitely range further than that. Oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. I mean, there there's obviously numerous issues in terms of women who um, will say outwardly that they want to do that job, that they like it, but really they're being forced into it by some kind of financial Mm -hmm. circumstance or otherwise. But on the other hand of that, there will be women who, you know, like have a college degree, for example, and could be doing something else and say, hey, listen, this is what I like to do. And if that's the case, And I haven't met too many of those, but I'm pretty sure they're they're out there. There's agency there. Tiffany? Um, I also would would say um, when it comes to like agency and women being able to uh, to like pose new and have like that sexual liberation and that freedom it's just kind of like you know when uh, an elected official like in theory they have like this great p- piece of legislation but when it rolls out and how it's being like implemented it always kind of like goes wrong doesn't impact the people that were supposed to so I think we have to take into account the the society that we're currently living in, the people who are in power and how they perpetuate, you know, um, how women should be in comparison to how women, you know, feel that they're what their agency is, especially when it comes to feminism. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so I'm going to switch gears here for a second. I have another story. Um, and then uh, in a little while, we're going to get to the story about uh, the soldier that was killed in Niger. Um, but before we do, uh, so this is a story that's really pissing me off this week. So apparently there's um, a school. I think I want to say it's in Mississippi, could be Arkansas. I'm forgetting off the top of my head. But either way, um, they are banning um, a book. And this book is uh, the book um, about uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. And it's about a black man who is falsely accused of a rape. And it's about a white lawyer who represents him um, in this rape trial. Um, And it touches on a lot of themes about racism, about racial, uh, you know, relations in this country. And of course, this is an old book. This is not a new book. It was written quite a long time ago. And now this school district is going to ban this book because it makes white people feel uncomfortable. So we can add this to one of the many things that, you know, white people feel uncomfortable about when they're literally sending black people to high schools that are named after people that were, you know, Civil War generals, as if they don't feel uncomfortable. It's like, you know, sending a Jewish person to Hitler High School, but nobody has a problem with it. But, you know, as soon as white people are offended because this book makes them feel uncomfortable, then all of a sudden we have to ban the book. Um, so, you know, Tiffany, your thoughts about that? Um, when I heard this story, I feel like I couldn't roll my eyes as hard as I wanted to because it's just so frustrating when there's a, a particular, uh, I feel like, uh, section in 
uh, the United States that is so opposed to like truth and facts and stats and data that shows you point blank clearly that there is like systematic racism, there's oppression happening. And To Kill a Mockingbird is like just, you know, is a, a form of it's a book and it's a literary book that has been read for a number of years. And by just simply pulling it off the shelves because it makes white people feel uncomfortable, we're never, ever going to truly, you know, break ground when it talks when we talk about, you know, racial oppression or systematic inequality, because people don't even want to read a book in the eighth grade class. So I think it's really problematic and it's unfortunate that we have a system where your feelings are greater than tragedies that happen at the hands of, you know, your your ancestors. And that is something that we have to address. And we just can't simply turn a blind eye and say, oh, it makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't want to talk about this because the truth be told, like, you know, a lot of people of color and black people, they, they live in a state of uncomfortability all the time. And no one ever considers our pain or how we feel about certain situations. Just, you know, get over it. Absolutely. And guys, if you have a question or a comment, the number is 212-650-6903. Uh, speaking about uh, discrimination, uh, systematic oppression, um, well, we have President Donald Trump, right? And <laughs> so, right. Anything related to Trump is discriminatory. So mm-hmm. I wanted the to white talk supremacists about... in the White House. Absolutely. So Shout I wanted to, to talk about uh, his feud with with uh, a Democratic congresswoman over a soldier who was killed in Nigeria. So um, I've been following the story uh, about uh, what's been going on in Nigeria. Apparently, four uh, four green brunettes were green berets, berets. Thank you. Were killed about two day, two weeks ago, and in Nigeria, while they were there uh, in uh, engaging in counterterrorism. Well, we really don't know why they were there, but right. you know, we'll find out. Benghazi. <laughs> yes. Right. This is Trump's Benghazi. Trump's so Benghazi. they were killed. Um, apparently, the Department of Defense on October fifth sent Donald Trump a statement uh, to read uh, publicly acknowledging the death, of uh, the deaths of these soldiers, uh, and and to you know show them some honorability, show them some honor. He refused to address it, and then when it came up a couple days later. He automatically said instead of addressing the deaths of these soldiers, he's been saying things like, oh, no other president or Obama didn't call the families of fallen soldiers. And he and then apparently he told a widow, the family of the fallen soldier, like, you know what? Well, he knew what he was signed up for. So it's like, number one, it's like, first of all, I want to know what happened in Nigeria. That's number one. And number two, why is the president deflecting and turning it pull up of uh, uh, turning this into political issue? Like, what is he doing? Uh, racism. Um, you know, like, not that that's an answer for everything, but in this case it is. I mean, number one, they're going after, even General Kelly is attacking uh, Congresswoman Wilson. In fact, and even making up things that are not even true, saying that um, at a speech to dedicate a building to two fallen uh, members of the FBI or the CIA or something, that she was um, saying how good she was politically and that she did this and that, um, when in reality there's a clip of that uh, dedicated to that of that building and she never said any of those things and in fact she was not a congressman when the congresswoman when the uh, funding was secured for that number two is uh, they've been using this trope of her being oh wacky wilson wacky wilson wacky Mm -hmm. wilson because she wears cowboy hats how many males congress people from the south wear cowboy hats like that that doesn't even make any sense and and number three and this is the bigger point like 
a fallen black soldier being disrespected in America really is nothing new. I got some quick statistics on that. Um, during the First World War, black people accounted for less than 10% of the armies enlisted. Yet during the war, 70 soldiers, American soldiers, were executed by the U.S. military. And out of those, 55 of them soldiers were black. That's 79%. After Truman ordered an end to segregation in 1948, racial disparities in the military continued. And in 2017, a study that was published by a military advocacy group called Protect Our Defenders found that there was significant racial disparities in the military justice system and that black members of the military were substantially more likely than their white counterparts to be punished in four out of five branches of the U.S. Armed Forces. So let's not forget that the way black service members are treated in the military has always been an aberration, and this is just a continuation of that fact. Tiffany? Um, additionally, I just feel like when it was came to our general, uh, John Kelly and, uh, the 45th president is like, when in doubt, you know, blame the black man or woman who's like, you know, uh, speaking out against you. And I think it was so disrespectful. The fact that when he made that phone call that, uh, according to the widow who we all probably saw that picture of her hunched over the casket while pregnant and her um, daughter right next to her crying her eyes out so that he can even remember his name and it's like time and time again you talk they talk about you know respecting the military standing for the flag especially when we, you know we compare that to the movement that was started by uh colin kaepernick when he started kneeling it's just like it's such a slap in the face and it's so much hypocrisy but i feel like when we have racism at work Hypocrisy doesn't matter, especially when it's being implemented by a, a, a white person and a white person in power. And I think, you know, by calling her empty and calling her an empty barrel is just totally making it's like it's this dog whistle politics and learning people like you, you don't need to listen to her. Like You see what she wears every day to work. Like, you, listen, she doesn't know what she's talking about. And even by us, by the media producing the uh, the video that shows that she didn't say anything like that. They're still refusing to say that this man lied. They're right. saying that he got the you know he got the facts wrong or he made an error. And they're not saying that. He lied. And, and I feel like media has a huge responsibility to call it for what it is, and they're refusing to do that. So they're also complicit in perpetuating what Donald Trump is doing. Absolutely, guys. And again, if you are listening, you have a question or comment. The number is two one two six five zero six nine zero three. Um, I did want to just speak on behalf of the caller. Greg did call back. Um, his concern was that he, he actually um, wanted to make a comment about a prison rape. And prison rape is a different um, a different topic that we did not have ten, a chance to talk about. Um, but prison rape does happen in male prisons, and it happens in female prisons. It's a huge and problem. It is a huge problem. It's a huge epidemic. Yep. He was particularly saying that women are raping other women in prison that does happen because it's an epidemic in prison and then he was saying that women are also going to jail for sexually assaulting other women the statistics show that that happens but that is not the norm so right. that's why we don't focus it because if 99 percent of all rapes are being done by men we need to address the problem the big problem Alyssa really quickly no no no, no. I was gonna say it sounds like he's saying all lives matter yeah, yeah. honestly it sounds like when you make statements like yeah. that like okay but like officers kill white people too like but the epidemic is black people the epidemic is women here Greg and I really need you to understand that because we spent a lot of time talking about the epidemic effect affecting other women on that note we do have to take another break don't go anywhere this is let your voice be heard 
And we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Again, my name is Selena Hill. I'm here with my co-host, Alyssa Fuchs, and our very special guest, Tiffany Brown. We just wrapped up the news roundup where we talked about a range of stories, everything from uh, the trans community and what Playboy is doing to give that community more agency to what's going on in Nigeria and the atrocity that is the Trump administration. Speaking of Donald Trump and atrocities, um, we're moving things along to talk about what's been going on in Puerto Rico. And I actually had a clip that I wanted to start off by playing. Right. So, yeah, while we get the Twitter, while we get that clip going for you, um, if you have a question or a comment or you want to leave a comment about something that we said earlier on in the show, um, you can definitely do that on our Facebook page. That's Facebook.com slash Let Your Voice Be Heard Radio. Um, on the other hand, if you want to tweet at us, we can be tweeted at. Um, at Be Heard underscore radio is our Twitter handle. Um, in addition, you can always leave a uh, a comment on the Politically Preposterous Facebook page. On that note, we're going to go to the clip. This is our opportunity, uh, again, to showcase that uh, Puerto Rico, uh, U.S. citizens of Puerto Rico, can uh, come out of this catastrophe stronger than ever before. Governor, I just want to maybe ask you a question, because for the spirit of these people that have worked so hard and so long, like Tom and like Brock and like so many others, did the United States did our government when we came in. Did we do a great job? Military, first responders, uh, FEMA, did we do a great job? You responded immediately, sir, and, and you did so. Uh, you know, Tom and uh, Brock, they have been on the phone with me essentially every, every day since the uh, disaster. We recognize that there are some logistical uh, uh, limitations that we have in Puerto Rico. We didn't have the ports open for a couple of days. Uh, we didn't have the... Okay, and that was the clip of Donald Trump, our president... And Goebbels, ooh, I mean, I'm um, sorry, wrong person. <laughs> uh, the propaganda train. Obviously, praising themselves and, and praising uh, the Trump administration. So in that clip, we heard uh, President Donald Trump and the governor of Puerto Rico uh, last week praising the federal government's response to help Puerto Rico rebuild uh, one month after it was devastated by Hurricane Maria. And during this press conference, this is the time where President Trump also told reporters that his administration deserves a perfect 10 out of a 10 for its response. And, no, it, it, it's it's preposterous. And at one point, as we just heard in the clip, he said, uh, um, Trump asked the governor, did our government do a great job? And he's like, and I quote, you responded immediately, sir. Like, wh what is going on? It sounds like we investigated ourselves. <laughs> like The lies. No, the lies. Seriously. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's like there's so many lies. And, you know, the truth lies in between, you know, two lies, right? <laughs> um, and honestly. Um, but, you know, like you literally have... Still, 80% of the country without power, um, although it's starting to be restored. You have, you know, yeah, for the long longest time you had Trump. I know we're going to have somebody on to give us some more statistics about that. For the longest time you had Trump saying, um, you know, that like nothing was going wrong and no people had died. And meanwhile, there was all these other reports coming out about multiple people that um, had been in critical care units and ICU units that had passed away. Apparently, there was some hospital ship that was completely empty. You couldn't get ships into ports. But the worst thing about it from my perspective is that for four days 
For four days, Donald Trump said nothing. For four days, Donald Trump tweeted about Colin Kaepernick, about the NFL, Mm -hmm. about the flag protests, um, and about everything else under the sun. But he did not say anything about Puerto Rico, a place where these are U.S. citizens. Yep, um, As if he didn't even know that they were U.S. citizens. Not one word. It was radio silence. And it's unjustifiable. And as Alyssa just said, yeah, you're right. There's about 78% of the island has no electricity. Many residents have even resorted to drinking toxic water out of desperation. Access to food and access to fuel is still very limited. The hospitals are running out of generators. Altogether, about 49 people have died as a result of the storm, but the real count is likely much higher. And like Alyssa said, to make matters worse, Trump has tweeted a number of bizarre statements, and he's even said some during press conferences. Uh, another example is when he called into question the federal government's commitment to supporting the long-term uh, recovery there. He tweeted that FEMA and first responders can't stay there forever. Wake up, Mr. President. They've been there for less than four weeks. So they can't stay in Florida forever for those people? They can't stay in... I mean, like, I, I mean, get it. even with Texas, the the FEMA administrator declared that it will stay in Texas for years. They just did that. Right, and, like, I get it. Okay, fine. Nobody's ever going to stay anywhere for forever. Um, that may be true. But what was implied there is that these people are second-class citizens, that they're not going to get the same kind of response that American citizens that live in a state like Florida, like uh, Texas, like Louisiana, um, are going to get. And that's a real problem because, sec- like, Puerto Ricans are not second-class citizens. Puerto Ricans are Americans. And it's also going to become an ever-increasing political problem for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Because guess what? There's a mass exodus going on now. People are leaving Puerto Rico. People are going to continue to leave Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. And where are they going to come? They're going to come to New York, and they're going to come to Florida. And while they might not change the political scheme here in New York, they're definitely going to change this in Florida. And they're going yep. to remember yes. mm-hmm. in 2018 when they go to the polls, in 2020 Ask- when they go to the polls, about mm-hmm. what Donald Trump said and how their family members and friends were treated in Puerto Rico. It's going to have a difference. So Donald Trump's just burying himself. He is. It's political suicide. And to help us try to grapple with the disconnect between the Trump administration and reality, we have a very <laughs> special guest on the line with us. We have Thailing Moria Perez. She is a biological ocean oceanographer and an environmentalist. She she is a Boniqua. She was born in Mayagos and raised in El Barrio. Um, she was living in Puerto Rico when she was uh, getting her degree. Uh, I believe now she is back in the States. Uh, Thailing, it is very happy. We are very happy to have you on the line with us. Thank you so much for having me, and good afternoon to everyone. Good Absolutely. Afternoon. And I, I want to just ask you, I mean, like you lived in Puerto Rico, what is the disconnect between Trump's assessment of the government's response and the reality of the aftermath? I mean, I just listened to that clip and my my heart raced a little bit because of the anger. I think Trump is trying to force a narrative that is not true and was never true. Um, To say that the response has been great is one of the biggest lies I've I've ever heard come out of any administration. you know, to say that that the that the response was immediate is a lie. To try to force a narrative that he's going to be with our people 100% is a lie. You know, FEMA is on the ground, but what they're doing is they're occupying space and they're taking away valuable resources from our people on the ground. Their redlining has actually prevented help from being able to get to our people that the diaspora is sending, and people in solidarity as well. You know, if FEMA was so, never so- there... I feel like our people would have already been helped and 
I'm not saying that we could have recovered the energy grid thus far, and I'm not saying that everything would have been perfect, but people would have gotten proper food and water, not just a can of salchichas, Skittles, a Nutri-Grain bar, and a plastic spoon. You know, that Ty, to me is disrespectful. No, you know, Ty, I just want you to just elaborate there because what you're saying is FEMA is making the situation worse. And you talked about redlining. Can you just elaborate? Because what the news media, I think, uh, here in the U.S. is covering is that FEMA was there and they were helping the situation. But you're saying the opposite has happened. FEMA is not helping at all. What FEMA is doing is something that we like to refer as a shock doctrine. Um, FEMA and other like armed forces are on the island, and they're basically just occupying Puerto Rico. They're not there to help our people. Um, if FEMA really wanted to help, we wouldn't have 4,000 to 7,000 shipping containers in the San Juan port right now. That food would have been distributed week one. You know, it doesn't take rocket science. And that's the problem when you're a colony and you're constantly imposed by people that are not from Puerto Rico on the island. They want to pretend to know more about our situation than islanders ourselves. And things don't get done. You know, this is a situation in which we have tried to ship things to Puerto Rico and FEMA has confiscated everything where, um, where organizations on the island have to go out of their way to send people letters stating that they are NGO organizations receiving donations so that they can get that because FEMA won't allow things to be released. This is a situation in which FEMA workers are in San Juan hotels um, knocking back nice drinks and margaritas with in air conditioning. And I have people in my pueblos that are telling me firsthand accounts that they have not seen a FEMA official pass through at all. You know, and like, it's sad to think that FEMA is trained to do this and that the military is trained to go into the worst parts of the world and declare war and that they're trained to come to my island and recruit my people when it comes to fighting wars and shedding our blood for Americans, right? But we don't get the same treatment when it comes to feeding our people or getting them resources. I don't understand what's so trivial about figuring out distribution on, on an archipelago that's 100 by 35 miles. That's you, not difficult. There's, there's you, big right. ocean. Big ocean. No, no, no. Uh, Ty, thank you so much for just breaking down uh, the, the the demographics and, and just the reality of the situation. And I also know there's a number of private contractors uh, who look like they're trying to uh, benefit or profit over the devastation. Um, I know Tiffany definitely wanted to mm -hmm. have you had a question or comment. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Tiffany. Um, so yesterday, uh, the Washington Post, they had put out an article about how some Trump supporters that were impacted by Harvey and Irma didn't feel that uh, the people of Puerto Rico should receive the same uh, sort of help. And I believe there was like one story where one of this family already received $14,000 in their account because of the hurricane for them to help them like rebuild their homes and like make sure, you know, it could be like a flood ready. And then when you talk about how FEMA is not even allowing food that has been donated, not even necessarily coming out of their budget. Like how does those type of those type of stories like translate to the people of Puerto Rico, especially now? I think uh, de Blasio is opening up a bunch of centers that's going to be taking in a lot of Puerto Ricans that they're expected to be coming into New York City. So how do you think the people of Puerto Rico are even Looking at, you know, the Trump administration, like, do you feel like they really understand the how this man is operating in, in context when it comes to Puerto Rico? Or especially when you see the, the governor just kind of like, yeah, you did a great job. Ty? Yeah. Um, you know, 
I sp- I spoke to some family yesterday, and I don't even have to think about this because I'm just gonna echo their voice right now. People in Puerto Rico are pissed, and I think that if before um, people in Puerto Rico were even considering statehood, I think they understand. I think we understand as an island, as a group of people, where we stand in the eyes of America and Americans that don't view us um, as humans. You know, I, I like to, I like to, to I like to kind of like stray away from the discourse that we should be receiving help because we are U.S. citizens. We should be receiving help because this is a humanitarian crisis. You know, the U.S. is real quick to try to respond to Haiti and to other parts of the world, and that response is not done for Puerto Rico. And I think people on the island are very aware where we stand. You know, this is a matter, you know, we cannot hide the fact that we're getting a very different response because we are black and brown people, because we are poor, because we are Latinos, because we are Caribeños. We're not going to get the same response. You know, you you just told me that it was $14,000 that was offered to a family. I have some of my friends that are online as we speak at a FEMA office and all that they're going to give them is $500. $500 is nothing, okay, compared to all the damage that's happening. And then on top of that, FEMA is also making it impossible because they're requiring documents and people to go online to get this aid. There's no power on the island. How are they going to go online and fill out an application? You know, they're doing, they're making it impossible. And I think people on the island know, you know, they, they know what's up now. And if, and if there's anything positive that could come out of Hurricane Maria on the island is that people are awake, that we can no longer hide behind the smoking mirrors of what it is to have citizenship, which, by the way, is imposed on our people. We didn't ask to be citizens. We were given citizenship to be drafted for wars and to have our, our land basically be um, extracted by, by the U.S. So I, I think it's important to distinguish that we have imposed citizenship and that our people are now awake and that they understand the realities of what is happening and that people on the island are very upset that they understand that it's going to basically be the pueblo saving the pueblo or like poor people saving poor people, the diaspora saving our people over there. Oh, thank you so much for just breaking it down again, Ty. We appreciate that. It is unjustifiable what is going on in Puerto Rico. Uh, not to cut you off, but we do need to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere, guys. When we come back, we will continue talking about the Trump administration's disastrous response to the American citizens in Puerto Rico. And again, like Ty pointed out, they didn't ask to be colonized. They didn't ask for this. And now that we have them, look how we're treating them. And it's is because they are black and they are brown. Don't go anywhere. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. And we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Again, my name is Selena Hill. I have with me my co-host, Alyssa Fuchs, and our special guest uh, with us, Tiffany Brown, has been hanging out with us all show. Um, we are talking about the tragedy in Puerto Rico, and we have with us a, a Puerto Rican activist, phenomenal activist, Ty, who's just been uh, talking to us about the devastation that's there, the Trump administration's response, and the fact that, Puerto Rico, they want to be self-sufficient. They want independence, and they do want freedom. Um, And I wanted to bring things to the 1920 Jones Act. And, again, the Jones Act required that all goods transported between the mainland U.S. ports and those in Puerto Rico had to be carried on only U.S. flagged ships 
contracted, owned, or accrued by U.S. citizens. Now, what happened was Donald Trump, um, he temporarily halted this act, but that expired a few days ago. So, um, Ty, I want to get your opinion on the Jones Act and if you think it needs to just come to a full repeal. Absolutely. Um, the Jones Act is is part responsible for the debt that the country has um, because it makes everything much more expensive for Puerto Rican people and it forces us into this um, into this system that enslaves us in having to do commerce with the U.S. So the Jones Act was initially created to ensure that U.S. would have um, economy based on the merchant industry. And so this forces Puerto Rico to have to do business with the U.S. And the fact that, you know, we had like a little suspension of the Jones Act for only 10 days is ridiculous because um, anybody that knows about marine navigation would understand that it takes about 18 days to get a boat from New York down to Puerto Rico, and that's pending the weather. So if you, if you look at that in perspective of a 10-day suspension, you would know that that does absolutely nothing for our people. Um, you know, this is a law that's, that's colonial. It violates human rights. It is a law that it's archaic. It needs to be repealed completely. And if this gets, if this law were to be repealed, Puerto Rico will be able to um, become self-sufficient faster because then we can get aid from our fellow Caribeños. You know, we can we can get Cuban doctors to come to the island along with their aid. We can get the Dominican Republic to send things. We can also have things sent to the U.S. Virgin Islands and to other other colonial territories by the U.S. Um, you know, the Jones Act is responsible, again, for products that are two to three times more expensive on the island. And you got to keep in mind that people on the island's income is far lower than income here in New York and, and other states. We're talking about the average household income is about 21000 and that's on a good job. Ty, do you, you know? think that... Do you think that legislators here in the U.S. are strategically uh, making this decision to keep the Jones Act in place, and particularly the Trump administration, so that it, it almost cripples uh, the island? Do you do you think that there, there's some like strategy behind that? Absolutely. Um, you know, a lot of the people that are in charge of navigating products, they're unionized folks, and you you know they also respond to banks. And I feel like the U.S. is not paying attention to keeping that money for them instead of paying attention to the fact that this is a humanitarian crisis. And as we know, our government responds to money. It doesn't respond to lives, unfortunately. So that's, that's the reality. Um, I feel like they're not doing everything possible, and I feel like this should have been done even before the Trump administration. Um, this is a law that cripples not just Puerto Rico's economies, but other U.S. territories alike as well, such as Hawaii such as U.S. Virgin Islands, you know, it, it cripples our economy because it forces us to have to take products that way. Even our products that we plant, grow, and cultivate in Puerto Rico have to get on boats, come to the U.S. and come right back to us. So we have to pay for the things that we grow on our own soil, two to three times as much. That's ridiculous. You know, we cannot expect Puerto Rico to recover if we cannot get aid into the island. That's like... That's like the first thing you got to take care of. We cannot do a just recovery if there is no way of getting aid to the island. So I am in full, I am in full opposition to the Jones Act, and I would, I am calling for the repeal of the Jones Act 
Right. And I agree. It is absolutely ridiculous. I think we're getting some comments, Alyssa, on Facebook Live. Yeah, we are. Um, sorry about that, guys. We're getting comment from Catherine Morrow. Um, she left us a few comments. We thank you, Catherine. She says the sluggards see Puerto Rico as a huge resort. Trump could give two pennies about anything that do- any sorry, any that does not agree with him. He's clearly carrying a mental disease. I believe those close to him do what he says because he may push the button just because we will never know the real story until he is ousted or we take other measures. No, I mean, I think that Donald Trump does any and everything that is in his own self-interest. I mean, he's a capitalist. He's a a multimillionaire person, you know, real estate broker, a reality star. He does not care. And he made it uh, very clear that when it comes to black and brown lives, that is not his priority. Alyssa? Yeah, no, I actually have a question for our, our, uh, our great guest, uh, which is this. You know, we were talking about, like, what's the reason for this? Um, you know, uh, obviously, aside from the racial aspects of it, which I know we just talked about in depth, um, to me, this seems kind of confusing because from what I'm reading or understanding about the political situation um, is that People are very unhappy with the slow response. People are now trying to leave Puerto Rico, that there is essentially a mass exodus Puerto Rico. I mentioned earlier, a lot of those people are expected to go to Florida. That could have a huge impact on Republicans' ability to win the election in 2018. Um, It could have a huge uh, impact on Trump's ability to win 2020. So to me, I don't see Trump gaining anything from a a poor response um, in any way. In fact, I see it working in reverse. But it seems that you've seemed to indicate in some of your comments that this is calculated. Um, Do you say that that's just based on the racial aspect or is there some other monetary consideration that helps Trump? Because at least from a political situation, I see this hurting Trump and the Republicans. Absolutely. This is calculated. You know, Puerto Rico was in crisis before um, Hurricane Maria and we had Le Promesa in full effect already happening there. Um, and what these administrations are trying to do is they're trying to push our people out of the island. They're trying to force a mass exodus. You know, our people know what hurricanes are. And, and that's not to say that they were expecting a Category 5 um, to this extent. But our people understand what a hurricane is. We are islanders. We, we understand this. Um, the crisis is the lack of response in the political warfare. That's the crisis part of this. And... It is strategic because they have been trying to push our people out of Puerto Rico for many generations now. Um, we're talking about gentrification on our own coastline. We're talking about American companies wanting to come in and take over. For every Puerto Rican that leaves, you have two Americanos that come and want to take over businesses on the island, invest in our soils, contaminate our waters. Um, so to, to, to America and to the bankers, this is real estate. Puerto Rico is real estate, and this is also a way of um, repaying the debt or, like, charging the pueblo for the debt that we did not cause. This was caused by bankers and corrupt bonds and Wall Street wolves. So this is absolutely calculated. You know, they don't want to help people out knowing that they're sitting on top of a treasure. Puerto Rico is a treasure. It sits strategically between the lesser and the greater Antilles. It sits strategically before... Um, in the middle of major land masses, it sits in the Caribbean Sea. You know, look at the, the geographic location of Puerto Rico, our natural resources. We're one of the few islands in the Caribbean with natural um, aquifers. We have many different biomes. We have natural resources that are at the moment being extracted, but we still have those things. And so this is strategic for people to want to push us out and extract the resources 
and move our people out. Yeah, you know, um, I agree. And it is it's horrible. It's horrible what's going on with this mass mass exodus. And I think you were spot on time when you just talked about how the shock doctrine, how when big catastrophes happen, that's when Mm -hmm. big government moves in, capitalists move in and they use this as a time to just profit. And I I agree because it doesn't make sense for us to like the U.S. military and the U.S. government has the resources to help this island rebuild. It doesn't make sense for us to just abandon them unless there's a strategic calculated uh, reasoning behind it that only profits the 1%, the government and and other entities that can't be trusted. Um, You know, moving forward, I wasn't always, and I can admit, I wasn't always as, I didn't always understand why Puerto Ricans did not want statehood, but they wanted independence. Now, I mean, it's as clear as day. If you and it feels like if you guys don't get this independence or freedom, you're going to lose your culture. You're going to lose your identity. Like I went to Puerto Rico twice. I absolutely fell in love with the island and what it has to offer and the people. And the last thing we want to see is a genocide of a beautiful island that is self-sufficient. So the question I have is what needs to be done or can be done so that the, the freedom that Puerto Rico deserves can finally come into fruition. So there's st- there are several steps to this, right? So first we need to eliminate the Jones Act because that's like a, a direct hindrance to the amount of aid that can get to our people and is also contributing to the humanitarian crisis there. Um, we need to eliminate the debt. We, you know, people need to realize that the pueblo de Nacos is that hold the corrupt bankers and the political um, officials responsible for that debt not the pueblo. We need to uh, support just recovery efforts for Puerto Rico. And a just recovery is a recovery um, that basically allows for sustainable resources where you're creating an economy based on a sustainable system. So we're talking about solar power. We're talking about going back to farming our lands so that we can be self-sufficient. We're talking about social equity um, medical care, education, we need to be um, supporting those types of recoveries because even if we have somebody like Tesla on the island with solar power, it would still speak to privatization. We need to make an economy where our people can be in charge of that and it can be community-based, and that's a just recovery. So we need to support that. And, and finally, we need people to wake up and we need people to start letting the government know that what's happening with Puerto Rico is not okay that Puerto Rico needs to be free because under colonial rule, we will never, you know, this is what, this is what a colony is. When you're colonized, you don't have a choice. Things are imposed upon you, including pain and suffering. So we need people to wake up and we need people to take to the streets and we need people to start letting the government know that this is unacceptable and that it is time for Puerto Rico to be free. Absolutely. And I know that the mayor in San Juan has been doing has been a strong voice in um, just advocating for the Puerto, the people of Puerto Rico. But it seems like the governor is doing the opposite. I mean, he's sitting up there in the White House with Trump praising him. And I know he's a Republican, but is he that far removed from his own? Yes. <laughs> like, what is going on with him really quickly? Governor Ricardo Rosselló is somebody that comes from a rich family in Puerto Rico, a very privileged family, and his father was actually governor as well. And his father is largely responsible for a lot of the debt and a lot of the, the, the you know, the fall of Puerto Rico. Um, Ricardo Rosselló is far removed because he has an agenda of statehood. And why does he have this agenda? Because he sits comfortable 
in his mansion in Puerto Rico and in his properties, and and he's not suffering with the pueblo. Um, he is far removed because he comes from a family that's wealthy. He is a white presenting man. Um, he sits comfortable because he already has these connections. He has contracts with millionaires. And as long as that there's money involved, he is willing to turn a blind eye on everything. And, you know, there's been other, other movements on the island, such as the student movement, other environmental movements. Um, there's, there's been movements where people have been getting poisoned by toxic ashes on the island. And this governor has been absolutely absent because what he wants is he wants statehood because he understands that that will mean money in his pockets. Horrible. Uh, Ty, thank you so much again for joining us here on Let Your Voice Be Heard. Please thank let you. our listeners know how they can follow and support you and support the, the people of Puerto Rico. Well, I normally do public posts on social media. Uh, my Facebook name is Ty Moya, T-H-A-Y-M-O-Y-A, and I do public posts. I'm also um, doing a clean water campaign called Aguantando La Sed. And you can find that in You Caring as well as my Facebook page. I'm trying to get clean drinking water for our people because we know that the water is toxic right now and full of viral um, bacteria that can turn into diseases and epidemics for our people. So if you can support that campaign, that will be very much appreciated. Um, I also just became the recently became the uh, Just Recovery Organizer for Uprose, and they are the oldest uh, Latino grassroots community-based organization in Brooklyn. And they're supporting uh, Just Recoveries, um, also in partnership with the Climate Justice Alliance. So, you know, you there are several ways to, to support this recovery. And I also published a map on my social media of ways to get aid directly to the people on the island, whether it be monetary, fees, solar lights. There's information in, in, in an interactive map. Great. Thank you again. And I just wanted to end and wrap up this segment by saying it's time for freedom for the people of Puerto Rico. I mean, Ty laid it out. We see what's going on. We see how we have abandoned these people. The mainland has abandoned these people on this island. And they, they've lost their homes. They've lost their businesses. We don't want them to lose their culture. Just look at the indigenous people of America. We don't want the Puerto Ricans to be next. On that note, we do have to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere. When we come back, Alyssa's giving us the quickie, but it's time for freedom. Freedom, freedom, I can't move. Freedom, cut me loose. And we are back. Uh, this is Alyssa Fuchs. Uh, this is Let Your Voice Be Heard Radio, and it's now time for the quickie. So imagine that somebody um, gave you permission to do some art on their wall. So you did not own this building. Somebody else owned a building, um, but there was nothing going on with the building. And they decided to say, hey, you can do some artwork and some paintings on my wall. So you did. And they were great paintings and everybody loved them. And then all of a sudden, the person who owned the building decided that he was going to sell the building uh, to somebody else in order for condos to be built on the building. Um, and maybe you knew that that might be something that was coming down the line, but he never notified you that he was going to get rid of your artwork. And then all of a sudden, you woke up one morning and you went down to go see your artwork and somebody had painted over it with white paint and it was all gone. And you never had a chance to try and save it, to photograph it, to do anything with it, um, to at least keep it. Uh, or to even go to court and argue that um, that person should not be able to destroy your artwork because they've already destroyed it. Um, and so this is exactly what happened here in New York City at a place that is known as Five Points. Now, Five Points was what is considered the largest open air graffiti art 
museum or monument. Some have called it the largest aerosol, open-air aerosol museum in the world. Um, And it was a location that was a rare collaboration between a real estate developer, a guy named Jerry Wakaloff, and a group of artists. Um, And in 1993, this developer, Jerry Wakaloff, he allowed a crew of quote-unquote taggers, those are graffiti artists, to decorate his buildings that were located at 4546 David Street in Long Island City, New York, um, with a wide array of colorful murals that were absolutely amazing. If you ever had a chance to ride the 7 train and to actually see Five Points or actually go there yourself and look at some of the art, um, it was fabulous. It was not, you know, ugly, disgusting tags. I mean, this was like well thought out, well done. Um works of art um, that were absolutely beautiful and stunning and, you know, I'm sure took lots of time and effort to create. Um, And so uh, this existed for a long time. And then eventually this guy, Jerry Walkaloff, decided he wanted to sell um, five points to a developer who would then demolish the whole place and turn it into condos because now Long Island City is a place where lots of people wanted to live. Whereas back in 1993, Long Island City was not a place where people wanted to live. Uh, So what does this have anything to do with the law or with art or with the First Amendment? Um, and, 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 And that seems like, you know, a stretch, but it's not. Um, so on Tuesday, a trial began in Brooklyn in federal court, and this trial will eventually determine whether graffiti should be recognized as art to the point of being protected by federal law. And because this is a federal lawsuit, there's a possibility that this case could have broader implications all over the country when it comes to people making graffiti art on property that they do not own. Um, so More than 20 graffiti artists whose work appeared on the Five Point Complex in Long Island City sued Mr. Walkoff, the owner of the building, who demolished them. Um, And they argued that the graffiti was a protected work of art. And because it was a protected work of art, they had to be given 90 days notice that the the artwork was going to come down in order to allow them to try and preserve the art through a lawsuit or through other means. And that because they were not given that notice, um, and now there's no way to save that art, they are entitled to monetary damages from Mr. Walkoff for his actions. Um, So before the demolition, the artists actually tried several times to stop it. They had asked city officials to grant the complex landmark status. They tried to buy the complex themselves so that it wouldn't get turned into condos. Um, They did. They took all these actions, but eventually they were unsuccessful and the condos got sold. And then one night in the middle of the night, Mr. Walkoff showed up and he whitewashed by painting over all of the graffiti art with white paint so that there was nothing that they could do at that part. So their claims, the claims that the artists are bringing, rest on a rarely tested provision of federal law, which is called the Visual Artist Rights Act or VARA. Now, what VARA says is that you can protect public art of quote unquote recognized stature even if it's on somebody else's property, as long as you can establish that it was artwork, um, and regardless of whether or not you actually had the permission to do that art on that person's property, um, which is essentially to say that even if, technically speaking, you might commit a crime to trespass, although these people were not trespassing, they had permission to be there, um, and you create art, that your art could nonetheless be protected, and if that person wants to destroy or demolish your art, they may or may not be able to do so, depending on the outcome of this lawsuit and any appeals that may follow this lawsuit. So 
if the graffiti is considered art under the VARA, then the property owner would have to give the artist 90-day notice. Um, and in this case, the, the property owner here would have had to tell them 90 days before five points was slated to come down. Um, and if they were not notified, they would be entitled to money damages uh, for the value of their art. Now, the property owner is arguing two things. That one, the work is not art. It's graffiti, which is not considered art although I would disagree with that. And number two, that the VARA does not protect buildings. Um, and so basically what he's saying is that even though these things on the buildings may have been art, um, that people are not allowed to trespass and go on other people's properties and vandalize their property and then turn around and say, oh, this is artwork. Um, and the developer also argues that the artist did have more than 90 days notice because they were well aware that he planned on taking the building down from the very beginning in 1993 when he told them he could do the art there um, although what he's now calling not art um, and also that there was numerous news reports that the building had been sold and therefore even though he didn't technically notify them 90 days in advance they knew more than 90 days before the art came down that it was going to happen um, now on the other hand the artists of course argue that this is art, that it's protected, that they did not have the notice, and that they really did not want to sue him, and that they really do not want monetary damages. What they really wanted was their art, but that now they have no way to recover their art, so the only thing that they can do is sue for, for their monetary damages. Now, in the end, this trial will most likely focus on the question of whose creations are more valuable and more worth preserving. This is an argument we see all the time in politics. Um, when the lawyer for the building owner stood up to adjust the jury. The first thing he said was that this case is about property rights and it's about respecting people's property. On the other hand, when the lawyer for the artist got up to talk about the jury, um, he sort of played on that idea also, but he acknowledged um, that this was the artist, that this was a property of the owner, Mr. Wakaloff, but he also said, this is also the artist's property. This art is their property. Um, and that this isn't really about property. So this is going to eventually come down to whose rights are more important, the rights of this property owner in their property, in their building, or the rights of these artists in their art. Um, and it's going to be really interesting to see how it comes out. We'll obviously keep you posted during a news roundup, and we'll tell you what happens. Um, and this may also go up on appeal, because this is going to become a, a further issue um, as we go down the road. So it's very interesting. It's a fun topic, and we hope you'll keep paying attention, because it really matters when it comes to the rights of artists, which is something we not we don't talk about a lot here on Let Your Voice Be Heard radio yep definitely need to talk about that more thank you so much Alyssa. very interesting case uh that's going on with graffiti art i just want to thank all of the guests that called in to the to the show today and made our show great tiffany brown for filling in thanks for having me absolutely we always love thanks having you we want to thank everyone for listening to let your voice be heard and if you want to listen again or share this check us out on soundcloud we have all of our podcast archive there it's soundcloud slash let soundcloud.com slash let your voice be heard you can also check us out on the web lyvbh.com that's the acronym for let your voice be heard and of course we're on twitter we're on instagram at be heard underscore radio and check us out on facebook at Facebook.com slash let your voice be heard. Thanks again, guys, for tuning in and joining us. We'll be here next Sunday, God willing. Take care. <laughs>